Today's reading is a parable told by Luke in the 14th chapter. The story is often called the Great Banquet or the story of the dinner party. But as those of us appreciated who came on Wednesday evening to the study, it's more than just a nice story. Maybe a riddle is more accurate, and there are many layers to it. So maybe as you listen, you can imagine it's in a different dialect or language to your own, so you can perhaps be a little more open to hear it in a different way. And maybe with my accent, that makes it more easy, and you do that anyway, so hey. One Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees, and the people were watching him closely. Jesus turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, Go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, There is still room for more. So his master said, Go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A movable feast. I don't know if you noticed that as the title up on the slide earlier. I wonder if by show of hands, anyone recognizes that phrase, a movable feast. Wow, this is a smarter group than was in the first service. Don't tell them that. A movable feast is the name of a legendary memoir by a legendary writer, Ernest Hemingway. It recounts his youthful years in the 1920s, the roaring 20s, a hundred years ago. But he did not write the book until 40 years later. And it was the last manuscript he was working on before his death. Published in 1964, and then his grandson, Sean, republished an amended version about a decade ago. I admit that I have not read the entire thing. It was assigned once in school. Cliff notes are beautiful. But I've always been taken by that title, A Movable Feast. 
And for years, I didn't have any idea what it meant. But then I learned that Hemingway was an adult convert to Catholicism. And he said for him, it was one of the best decisions of his life to become Catholic. As he was always, he had always had within him this deep search for the spiritual. And that he felt his native religion, Protestantism, for him, had too many answers. It was too certain. And he found in Catholicism more mystery, more questions, and more suffering. And for someone of Hemingway's disposition, that really appealed to him. Roman Catholicism observes a number of feast days throughout the year. In fact, on about half of the days in the calendar year, you will find a saint or a feast to celebrate. St. Patrick, he's coming soon. St. Valentine's coming even sooner. St. Francis, Christmas, Easter, Good Friday. And even today, if you're looking for a reason to party, it's the feast of St. Timothy and Titus. In one sense, if you are devout Roman Catholic, you have something or someone to worry about nearly all the time. But on the other hand, if you are a devout Catholic, there is always a party to go to. And that can't be all bad either. Well, some of these feasts are fixed. Christmas will always be December 25th. St. Patrick is not giving up March 17th. Valentine has February 14th all to himself. But then there are other feasts that are movable, transferable. Ash Wednesday moves because Easter moves. You ever wonder why Easter moves around? It's always tied to the lunar calendar, something about the first full moon after the second beer or something. I don't know how it is, but it always moves with the lunar calendar. Good Friday moves all of these. This is the line that named the book. If you are lucky enough to have lived in Paris as a young man, then wherever you go for the rest of your life, it stays with you. For Paris is a movable feast. For his entire life, Hemingway took those years, that decade in Paris, with him for the remainder of his days. And I understand why he carried those days with him. Paris as a young man. Paris in your 20s during the roaring 20s. After the first war was gone and long before the threat of another. This was Hemingway before the old man in the sea. Before Cuba. Before Castro. Before Key West. Before those near fatal plane crashes. Before for whom the bell tolls. Before the Pulitzer and the Nobel Prizes, the divorces, the legal battles, the wrangling with the FBI, the purchase of that Idaho cabin where depression and sadness and alcoholism would eventually take Hemingway's life from him. Paris was joy. Paris was heaven. Paris was a banquet. Paris was the cultural, artistic, creative, social, revolutionary, and riotous center of the universe in the 1920s. A movable feast is Hemingway as a young, idealistic, romantic. 
He had survived terrible injuries from the First World War. He was in love. He'd become a father for the first time. He was hiking in the Alps on a regular basis. He was hanging out in cafes, hanging out, riding, sipping espresso, dining in world-class restaurants, eating the best food. He drank barrelfuls of sweet, red, rich wine. He was surrounded by beautiful and talented people. He still had his privacy. He had not yet been discovered. He still had life for himself. What else would a person want? What else would a person need? Living simple but satisfied. Anonymous but so invigorating. With all the good food, good drink, good company, and good love that you could stand. It's no wonder that till his last day, Hemingway was going back, going back to Paris and bringing those days along with him. He only understood much later how wonderful those years had been. But isn't that like all of us? Sometimes we spend a whole lot of time looking for something better coming when the best you got's right around you. This past Friday, as an aside, this past Friday, I was in the home of Mark Wesley. Mark is George McCauley's stepson. George McCauley's funeral service was here Sunday afternoon and then a second service in Atlanta on Friday. As his children said, you have to be real important to get two funerals. And I went up for the funeral, and then afterwards we were at Mark's house, beautiful home in Dunwoody, Georgia, and Hanging out in this beautiful home, beautiful catered meal. People were swapping stories, drinking coffee, everything that George McCauley loved. And I was wandering around his home and walked into Mark's office. And in his office, he's got all this uh, world-class memorab- sports memorabilia. He's got autographs by Johnny Bench and Pete Rose and Gail Sayers and uh, Roger Staubach and just everybody. And then he had this wonderful map on the wall with all these red push pins in it of all the places he's visited in his 55 or so years, and I was so jealous, I wanted to take it off the wall, put it in my bag, and take it home and just put my name on it instead because it seems so romantic, all the the traveling that he has done. But the thing in that office that caught my attention the most was this, and I'll read it. Kiss your life. Accept it just as it is today, now, so that those moments of happiness you're waiting for, do not pass you by. Kiss your life today, now, just as it is. Leave that up. Pictures are being taken, Garrett. Let them take that picture. That's exactly what I did. I wonder how much happier we would be if we would do just that. Stop anticipating and stop, for heaven's sake, going backwards. And kiss the life that you have now, the feast that is yours today. All the good food, good drink, good company, and good love that you can stand. It's right here, and it's right now. Can you say amen to that? But back to this movable feast. The one cited in our scripture reading today. It's not movable in the Catholic or the Hemingway sense of the term. It's movable in that Jesus moved some people out and moved some others in. Those that were on the Elite VIP list find themselves locked outside. And those who had never been invited to such a soiree in their entire life are the guests of honor. What in the world is such a story about? 
I said last week that Jesus' parables are intended to unsettle us, not to comfort us. If you're looking for a bedtime story, don't read the parables. They will keep you up all night. They will twist your brain. They will unsettle you. That's their job. I put that very principle into practice on Wednesday night at our Bible study class that we're going through the parables on Wednesday night. If you haven't shown up yet, there's always time. Wednesday night, we had a big group. I divided them all into groups to read and study a parable on their own and make application for the rest of us. And boy, you think rearranging the chairs on Sunday makes some people grumble. (laughs) Do it on Wednesday night during Bible study. And they didn't know I was listening, but I was listening. I didn't come down here for this. What are we doing? Are we going to be doing this next week? It's not supposed to be like this. He's never done this before. Right there, Jesus' parable went into application, and I could have just walked out right then, good night, and been gone. This was one of our parables. Jesus tells this story as a rebuke to those who think they know what the kingdom of God is. It's a condemnation against those who think they are in. It pulls back the curtain on our shipwrecked religious thinking, thinking that says, I'm on the in club and everybody over there is out. To which Jesus says, this is a movable feast. Be careful when you think you're the one that's in. You might be escorting yourself to the door and find those that are not like you at all coming in. That's what this story is about. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. These are the untouchables of Jesus' day, the unclean, the losers. It's like throwing this real fancy party in high society, like at the Hamptons or maybe behind the gate along 30A. And everyone who is someone is invited. But the place gets filled up with vagrants. Meth addicts, Guatemalan day laborers, the unseen worker who washes your restaurant dishes, the poor mother who drives from Florala five days a week to clean our condos. Place this story in the panhandle. Place it in ancient Roman Palestine. It'll hold up. The outsiders, the rejected, the lepers, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the handicapped, the sick, The castaways, these barefaced oddballs who don't fit into proper, respectable society, who wander in off the street not knowing the difference between a salad fork and an hors d'oeuvre. I don't even know if I know the difference. They haven't a clue about table manners or cocktail party etiquette, how to behave at such an event, yet these people are on the guest list. They find all the good food, good drink, good company, and good love that they can stand. And meanwhile, Those who had been previously invited, the ones who had good standing in society because they were born into the right families, had the right skin color, were on the inside because of their wealth, their religion, their class, their political connections. The joke is on them. Now they're outside living on the streets, trying to find newspapers as blankets to keep warm at night, eating out of a trash can, wondering if they can find a place for the homeless. 
The host doesn't cast them out because he doesn't love them or want them. He invited them. Offering all the good love, good drink, good food, good company that they could stand. But they wouldn't show. And so in their place comes all these others. God always welcomes the willing to his party. To his feast. All who will accept the invitation. We never find Jesus being uneasy or embarrassed by those who come to him. In fact, he went out of his way to welcome the weak, to grab hold of those who were hanging on by a thread. Jesus was forever healing the sick and uplifting the poor, sticking up for the downtrodden, crashing up against the shame and reward systems of his day. He was on the side of those too feeble to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Too poor to hire a better attorney. Too small to fight the system. He was and remains the hero for those who don't know enough, aren't strong enough, and can't recover fast enough. He saves the untouchables, the forgotten, the stigmatized, the diseased, the ostracized, the rejected, and the helpless. They are all welcomed by Jesus into his open arms. And we should welcome all as well, because all means all, y'all. Imagine this party. It's like Paris in the 1920s. Grills are firing. Wine is pouring. The band's playing. And here is this disorderly, ill-mannered, uncultured crowd. They're not dressed nice. They don't smell of Chanel. They wear shabby clothes. They smell like body odor and cheap wine. They don't work as stockbrokers. They're not engineers. They squeegee windshields. They didn't show up in a Mercedes. They came pushing an old shopping cart. When the photographers from the local paper arrived to take pictures for the society section or to post those pictures on Instagram, there's no pretty people there to take pictures of. Who are these people? None of this bothers the master of ceremonies. Still, there is room. Did you notice that? Still, there is room. Pack them in. Bring them all that my house will be filled. Now, can you imagine being one of the table waiters? One of the caterers that's been contracted for this big party. One of the bartenders. Crowd starts coming in. They're standing in the corner with their arms crossed. Who, who, who are these people? This old guy has, we've been working for this guy for years. He's never done anything like this. He's gone off his rocker. Go ahead and get those tip jars. Pull them up. These people ain't got no money. And then the important questions begin. Who's going to clean up this mess after these people? What if we have to call the cops? What if things get out of hand? And then the question, what will the neighbors think? Have you noticed that bothers us more than anything else? I quit worrying about what our neighbors thought. We, we, Cindy likes to say, raising our boys and the stuff we were into, we called the cops more than we called a plumber. We just quit worrying about what was the neighbor's thought. 
But Jesus was never made uncomfortable with anyone who chose to follow him. No one. An old preacher told me that years ago. That preacher's name was Max Cochran. Max was the father of my mentor, Jether Cochran. I know you've never heard that name before, Jether, but I just love it. Max, Jether, father, son, Baptist preachers near where I grew up. Max was old school. Max had very little education. He was what we call bivocational, which meant he worked all day and then shoved in his weekend to get a sermon together to preach on Sunday mornings. He had a big heart, little bitty man, about 5'5", might have weighed 110 pounds. Little bitty guy, wiry, tough, big heart. He loved everybody. That's not an exaggeration. He loved and welcomed everybody. And doesn't that sound wonderful, ideal? But this is Georgia in the 1960s. He told me a story from that time period. He was pastor of a little church called Glade Baptist Church. My own uncle would become pastor of that church some years later, and if I left right here this morning and got in my truck and started driving, I could drive right to the front doors. I know exactly where it is. It was the church in the Wildwood, little white church, clapboard siding, giant windows that went from the floor all the way up 15-foot high walls, church rock, simple parking area, slatted pews, the kinds that would crack and moan if you moved too much as a kid. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And they would just pull your mama's pantyhose all to pieces. <laughs> it was the 1960s. And Max began making the point that anybody and everybody ought to be welcome at the church. And everybody was, amen. Amen. And then he said, like these three black families that live in our community. They drive an hour to go to church every Sunday on the other side of the county. If they wanted to come to church here, they could walk here. That went over like a skunk coming through a pet door. About half the church got up in arms, led to a big church fight. And you may not know this, but beautiful idealistic churches that sit in the woods so peaceful looking can be filled with some very mean people. They start having this battle. And one man says, we will shut this church down before we will ever let one of those inwards through the door. At the height of this battle one Sunday morning, Max drives to church. He was always early, always there first. Walks up on the porch of the church. The doorknobs are gone. And through the holes of the door is a massive logging chain with a big padlock locking the door shut. And written on the church door, written on the white church door, any man who cuts this chain or opens this door, I'll kill him myself. Signed by the chairman of the deacons. Max's wife's name was Laura Zell. What a great name. That's as southern as it can get. Larzell. Larzell was one of them shouting Baptists. And if you don't know what a shouting Baptist is, you come see me after service and I'll tell you all about a shouting Baptist. She was spirited. And she's standing there. She was even smaller than Max. Max, what are you going to do? 
like, Max, what you going to do? Max says, let's get in the car. Max goes back, gets in the car. Larzell with him, drives home. Gets home, Larzell goes in. She's pacing the floor. Max, what you going to do? He said, you going to stay right here. I'm going back to church. What? I, gotta, I, I worked on this sermon, and I got to preach it. But before he goes back to the church, he goes out to his little he shed. <laughs> he shed. He goes out and gets the saw. Puts it in his car, drives back to the church. He gets back to the church. The porch is filled with people. Don't know whether to stay or leave. They see the writing on the wall. They see the chain through the door. They're terrified. Max walks up with that metal saw. Cuts the chain off, throws it out, throws the doors open, has church like nothing happened. The next Sunday, he cuts the chain again. Third Sunday, cuts the chain again. Fourth Sunday, they quit trying to lock the door. I was 19 when he told me that story, maybe 20. He was an old man then. He's been, been gone for 15 years now. And I said, well, Preacher Cochran, what would you have done if they tried to kill you? My eyes big. Now, a good southern gentleman would say, he said, Oh, it bothered me more than a little to think about that. But what would Jesus have done? And then I'll quote him properly how he actually said it. Jesus weren't never uncomfortable with nobody who chose to follow him. Did you get that? Jesus weren't never uncomfortable with nobody who chose to follow him. Why should we be?